This summer, we've spent a good amount of time hearing the stories of the sons and daughters of Abraham. We are in chapter 37 of Genesis, which brings us to the story of Joseph. Joseph is sent searching for his brothers, and when he finds them, they are eager to get rid of him. You probably won't be surprised to hear that there is jealousy and deception and trickery in this story. You see, the Bible seems to be without sweet, happy families, and personally, that's pretty good news to me. A word or two about the locations or the places that you're going to hear in this scripture passage. Hebron is the place of the family. Hebron is home. Shechem is a place of danger and disaster. And Dothan is even further away than the danger and disaster. This is Genesis chapter 37, beginning with verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? And he replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in a distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood, and they agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, and they sold him for 20 shekels to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. This is a story of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Lisa Damore is a child psychologist and an author who just this week was asked about how we can help our kids get back to school in this time that's been so strange and has worn us all down. She gave a very straightforward answer that I liked a lot. Damore said there are two things that help kids along no matter what. Those two things are warmth and structure. Warmth and structure or compassion and a routine. 
And so adults who focus on providing a sense of loving connection and some predictability every day will help children weather any challenging times. One could say that Joseph, Joseph is a child who gets too much warmth and not enough structure. The Joseph saga begins with these words, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. He's clearly the favorite, and it's evident to every person in the family. Jacob gives Joseph a robe, and there's something really special about this robe, but it might not be what you're thinking. Scripturally speaking, we're uncertain about whether or not this coat had many colors, and really it doesn't much matter what color it was. Genesis says that the robe was ornamented, and Martin Luther centuries later understood ornamented to mean colorful. But what's important about an ornamented robe in the time that this story was originally told is that an ornamented robe had sleeves. Sleeves aren't for everyone. Sleeves get in the way of the people who are doing the real work. Someone who works outside in the heat and the brush, like, say, a shepherd, would never wear sleeves. So when Jacob gives Joseph a coat with sleeves, he's essentially saying, son, your working days are over before they ever really began. And Joseph doesn't seem to be much for real work anyway. He specializes in tattling or bringing the bad news of the brothers back to the father. Michael Williams retells this Joseph saga by describing a little sister, a little sister who every Christmas got the most presents. For her birthday, she got exactly what she wanted, and I got underwear and socks, he wrote. She always got the biggest piece, the nicest bed, the most love. I want to be a doctor, she would say, and mom would tell her, darling, you can be anything you want to be. I want to be the governor of Georgia, I would say. And mom would say, that's nice. When my sister wasn't dreaming of being God's gift to medicine, she would dream of being a ballerina or an opera diva or an astronaut. And mom and dad would exchange glances of pure delight. Our daughter is the smartest and most beautiful in the whole world. So I had to get her. I saved all my allowance for a year, and I hired a hitman. Don't, don't get me wrong. I didn't want her dead. I just wanted her knocked off her high horse. The hitman broke into her room, grabbed her, and spirited her away. My parents were heartbroken. The worst of it, though, is that the guy took her to Georgia, where, well, they fell in love, got married, and last month she was elected the governor of Georgia. It's a crazy story, but the Joseph story is a crazy tale also, and I think making Joseph the main character turns this into a bit of a tall tale, an exaggeration. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann teaches that the main theme of this story is the power of the dream. So it is the dream that is to be our focus, and the main character in this story is not Joseph, but it's God. God is hidden in the form of a dream, silent and not visible. Joseph dreams, you see, not because he's the most special, but Joseph dreams because we are all called to dream. We dream. The people of God dream. 
And I'm not talking about the kind of dreaming that most often happens in my home, filtering through experiences and suppressed thoughts. When the Shelley family talks about dreams early to mid-morning, we're usually laughing and recognizing what we're worried about or too focused on. Theologically, biblically speaking, a dream imagines new possibilities. A dream is not what's behind us, but a dream is about what's in front of us. As John Philip Newell said in our video this morning, God is, the truth is, a living well. God is trying to throw up new ways of relating and moving forward. So we, as the people of God, open ourselves up to imagination and we dream. We dream. When I put my main focus on the dream in Genesis 37, I see that Joseph doesn't quite get it early on. As a young man, he's clumsy and naive and spoiled and self-centered. I really like the way that Robert Alter translates what the brothers have to say when they spot Joseph approaching from far away. The NIV and the NRSV both translate what the brothers say the same way. Here comes that dreamer. But Alter has the brothers assert, here comes that dream master. It's sarcastic. And this sarcasm rings true. I think it's exactly what siblings would do, exactly what they would say given the situation. Because the thing about young Joseph is he has the dream all to himself. He recognizes the dream. He retells the dream. He interprets the dream. He does all the work. He takes the whole task of dreaming onto himself. He can't keep his hands off of it. And dreaming done well, dreaming done right, you see, it's done in community. We dream together. One person receives or recognizes the dream. Another retells it, and yet another one or two interpret the dream. The faithful never dream alone. The faithful dream together. Those who dream alone, those who decide it's all about them or for them, well, they just become another dream master. And dream masters are destined for Shechem or disaster. One reason that we dream together, I think, is quite simply, it's fun. You see, there's an element of play to dreaming. And I find that Real dreaming either activates or it releases my laughter. One meeting that shows up on my calendar every week that I look forward to is worship planning. Right now we meet on Zoom, but it's still fun. And I suspect that it's still fun because this is a group that understands that both the power and the great fun of listening to what God is calling forth we plan worship together, and we almost always laugh, and that should be a relief to you. To dream forward is to imagine and to play. St. Francis lived in the 13th century in Italy, and when I think of St. Francis, I immediately think of a concrete statue that sits in my backyard, tranquil and peaceful, but it's concrete, so you know it's pretty rigid and holy. In her book, Vintage Saints and Sinners, Karen Wright Marsh reminds me that St. Francis was known for his energy, his joy, his ability to play. In the piazzas and along the country roads of Italy, 
Francis and his troop, they sang and they danced and they entertained. They were known as God's jugglers. They were storytellers, preaching in the sunshine and dancing and entertaining. You see, Francis was not one to plan and he wasn't one to worry. People were drawn to his generosity and his fun-loving manner, even though his day-to-day life was pretty austere, pretty severe. Francis was the son of a cloth merchant, but he refused to buy clothes. He owned no house, no roof over his head. He slept outside under the stars or on the floor of a chapel. He worked for food, but he refused to accept money for himself. Sound fun? Many people thought so, and they traded their own comforts for his friendship, for his optimism. Even today, 800 years later, there are many Franciscan communities that follow his way of life. Maybe you're thinking what I'm thinking. This is a heck of a time, difficult in so many ways. It just doesn't seem like the right time to imagine and play and dream. It's a decent point. And yet, Ryan Jacobson, Pastor Ryan, reminded me this week that the line of the Messiah can be traced back to two different figureheads, a king, that's the lineage of King David, and a suffering servant. And this is the legacy of Joseph, a suffering servant. From the time we're introduced to Joseph, though he dreams, his dreams reveal a great future, and we'll talk more about that next week. In the end, it's a better future for a great number of people Food for many, not just fame for Joseph. Joseph's story, though, is hard. It's a difficult path of betrayal, prison, and servitude. That's the thing about those who dream. We are the youngest, the powerless, the betrayed, the helpless, the abused. But we imagine and we know that God wants better. I was walking through the TV room Friday evening, and I caught a story, a true story, about a nine-year-old boy who was adopted two years ago in Florida as a seven-year-old. His adopted mom said about him, he is the most optimistic and genuinely caring kid that has absolutely no reason to be that way. Before he entered the foster system, he was twice hospitalized for brain injuries. But the story wasn't so much about him. The story was really about his dream, his hope that all old dogs in the animal shelter in his county would be adopted. He told a reporter, there's just something about old dogs I like. And he has adopted as many old dogs as his parents will allow. And this nine-year-old has encouraged dozens of adoptions of old dogs around him. And he volunteers at the animal shelter where every day that he shows up, the manager of the animal shelter says, this kid seeks out the oldest, mangiest, least adoptable dogs to love on. This little boy once told his mom, I know how it feels not to be loved and cared for. And I don't want any animal of mine to feel that way. You see, there's something about pain and suffering that just triggers a dream. 
May we dream forward together, dreaming some of the best dreams God has to offer. Pray with me. Most holy God and great imaginer, you are a God of possibilities and a God of hope. When we are confronted with hopelessness and limitations and suffering, you offer us a dream and you offer us friends. Lord, we ask that you would activate dreams among us now. Give us the courage to share the burden and the joy of imagination. We seek to create new ways that are pleasing to you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus the Christ, the King and Suffering Servant. Amen.